Welcome back again to another episode of Local Color Podcast. I am your faithful host, JV, back again at Moose House. Mateo on the boards, really liking his cornrows. Appreciate it. <laughs> I'm here with another special guest. What's your name? Hey, what's up? My name is Kate Bikenio, a.k.a. Be More Alien, FKA Station North Sad Boy. How'd you come up with that name? Um, How did I come up with that name? Um, I was definitely around the Station North area at the time, and I think um, I was in a bar and just like, I think I just said that randomly about like, you know, the days that I go through, and I was definitely in a depressive state, like, so I like just called myself a stereotypical st- Station North Sad Boy, and I decided to keep that name. Word. And then what about uh, Be More Alien? Be More Alien <laughs> was this name I thought of doing an acid trip coming down from an acid trip around 2016 like just trying to combine like everything like i felt i liked and like you know like that like was part of my identity being from baltimore and being an alien rap music like just the scene just like being different but like also being myself and i guess like identifying with like what some people would call like more culture as well so what culture um, Moors, like, you oh, know, oh, M-O-O-R. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah I'm, I'm familiar, okay. Yeah, so, like, all that comes together and builds, like, the Be More Alien. Okay, can you talk about that a little bit more? Because I, I have, like, a general idea of it, but I feel like even for some black people, they might not understand um, who the Moors were and, like, Moorish culture. So talk talk to me a little bit well, more about like, that. Well, like, Moors were, like, basically um, indigenous Africans that... um basically spread out from Africa and, like, try to, like, instill, like, culture in, like, different spots. And, like, I guess the place that, like, they identified, like, people identified them with the most is um, Spain because doing, um, I think it was, like, around the Black Pig period, like, Spain was, like, one of the places that was not, like, really affected because, like, the Moors, like, basically made sure that, like, the area of Spain was clean. And so, like, I'll try to, like, identify more of, like, you know, just, like, history that goes beyond slavery. It connects me with, like, you know, just always reminding me that well, always something deeper than myself with what I have to do. Mm, okay. And you mentioned growing up in Baltimore. What part of Baltimore did you grow up in? What was that like? I grew up in northeast Baltimore. For me, it was, like, very sheltered because, like, my parents were, like, strict Nigerian Catholics. So they were really about me, like, just being in the house and, like, studying for school and, like, being a, like, committed Christian. I still, like, got out of what I could, like, just being outside, like, you know, like, talking to, like, homies and, like, you know, visiting friends. So, um, it was, like, a real, like, nice, like, I guess, like, mix of culture for, like, me, um, you know, learning from my parents and, but also, like, learning from my friends and just, um, the word I guess I'll describe it, just, um, it was typical, I guess, like, mm-hmm. just for, like, me and, like, Funny, like, Nigerian, like, American, like, growing up in Baltimore, I guess it was, like, you know, just, like, typical, because I'm not trying to, like, act like, you know, it's, like, any different than anyone else's, you know, religion, school, and being outside. Okay. And do you have any siblings? Yeah, I got, um, four siblings. I didn't grow up with my older sister, but I grew up, um, with, um, my older sister and my two younger brothers. Okay. So... Like, are you, out of the five of y'all, you are, like, the middle? I am literally, the, yeah, I am the middle child. What's that like? <laughs> um, See, that, I guess, would be typical to be in the middle child. Um, You know, like, it's weird because, like, not having, like, you know, younger sisters and not having any older brothers, it definitely leaves me, like, you know, this, like, weird spot of just um 
learning how to like fit in but like trying to make my place because even though i'm not um the oldest i am the oldest brother so like i have the privilege of being the responsibility of like looking out for my brother so um it's humbling it's disciplining and it's it's just a lot but (laughs) the older i get the like more grateful i get for being a middle child because it made me like realize that like you know there's a lot that i had to go through just to experience to like you know with the good and the bad just because a lot of people didn't have like either Mm -hmm. and i had both of like my parents as well so like it made me understand like the family unit a lot better too and i try to i try to apply what i can to um you know the friendships i have and like you know the brotherhoods and sisters i have you mentioned um growing up in northeast baltimore which by the way like like what street did you live off of because my sister and i we lived in northeast baltimore too i lived off of um what was that i think it was was it mclean boulevard it was by mclean it was either on mclean boulevard or by mclean boulevard oh okay yeah Okay, we lived off of um, Shady Side, like right off of Lock Raven. I bet, bet. Yeah, you were close. Yeah, um, <clears throat> but we moved. Uh, my parents moved us to the county once my sister and I uh, got old enough to start school. But every time when I go back around there, I just kind of get like a feeling of nostalgia because I remember like bits and pieces about it when I was a kid. Um, but I feel like the Northeast area, like it's very nice. Um, I just, I just really like it. Uh, growing up. I know <laughs> the only reason why I know this is because my wife is Nigerian. Uh, so I like we've been together six years. So I hear all the stuff that like her dad would say about school. And, you know, if you're not a doctor, you're a failure. All this other shit. <laughs> <laughs> all this other shit. Man, I remember this. I still remember when I told my dad I wanted to be an artist. And oh. he did tell me it was useless. Like he did. And me, I understand mm-hmm. why he told me it was useless now. Mm-hmm. Because... I'm still not making no money. <laughs> um, no, but all jokes aside, um, they say because you they want you they wanted us to have security. Yeah, they wasn't trying to like downplay like any of our talents. I think they like they knew how talented I was. They just even with my mom, like when I told her that I was considering writing, she was telling me to be realistic because she told me that like no one would um buy my books with my name, mm-hmm. my my real name, which I don't reveal to anyone ever. But um. They just do it because um they have that like discipline because like they don't they feel like they moved to make a sacrifice for y'all that like us to have like better lives. In their image, a better life is having a good job where you don't have to like str- like worry about anything for you and your family. Yeah. And to them, they don't know anything better that comes with that than being a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. Yeah, exactly. Are your parents um? Are they Igbo? Yeah, they are. Oh, okay. Okay. Did they did they come to um the uh United States or when did they come to the United States? My father came um in nineteen eighty. He um was staying in West Baltimore. He actually is moved to where I live right now in West Baltimore. Um he moved out here because um his um well my aunt. I'm not even sure if I met her yet, but um she was staying out here since like the early seventies and he um wasn't feeling like Nigeria after um the Biafran war and like what he was going through like in secondary school. We um he there was a brother that he was really close to that he lost that he was a child soldier during the war. So he wasn't really feeling like, you know, he was like everywhere he was going he was reminded of his brother. So he moved out here to stay with um his sister. 
my aunt and just to like try and like build something for himself. So um he moved out here. Um he later had a ch- my first sister with um I guess my stepmom and like 2 years later then he um you know got um went to the army. He um finished his um college. He went to Morgan State. Um then he went back I think 86. He met my mother. They got married. And I think she came out here for the first time in eighty nine. Now were they from the uh the same village? No, not at all. That's funny. Um they're from different states actually. My dad is from this place called Emo State. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. the um town is called O'Reary. Oh wait wait, really? Yeah. My wife's family I think is from O'Reary as that's well. That's awesome. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Um uh, my mom is from this place called um a number state, mm-hmm. and the village that she's from is called um, Agawu. Mm, okay. Yeah. Okay. When you were growing up, and given the importance and significance that your that your parents put on education and stuff, what was your opinion of school? Was it like a nuisance, or did you like school? No, it absolutely was a fucking nuisance. But I, <laughs> but I liked reading. I liked reading a lot, and I did like mathematics and science at the time. Um, I like try to just get shit out the way. But I was really into reading. Um, I just was really into going to the library after school and like trying to like get as many books as I can at the time. I think I had like a record of like checking out thirty books oh. a month just to like and see if I can get through them. So I don't know if I got my like love of reading from school. I'm gonna say I did not, but I just saw the importance of it to like using this excuse just to continue reading and studying. Mm-hmm. But outside of school, the older I got, the less interest I had in school. But I was still reading. I was also in the GT class for reading and writing, so I still found it a nuisance. But like, at least I like enjoyed the books a little bit from time to time. But yeah, it was still a nuisance. <laughs> what kind of books were you into? Like more fiction or nonfiction? It was really both. Um, I remember um, reading. Um, a lot of um, books um, by, well, three books by Mildred D. Taylor, like Wolf Thunder, Hear My Cry, um, the Memphis book, and I forget the name of the other one. I also read a lot of, um, what's his name? Walter Dean Myers. I read a lot of, um, I read a lot of Donald Goins. I love Donald Goins. That's my favorite writer. I also read nonfiction books, just like books on like history, books on um, geography, books on, I know I said nonfiction, but books on magic. Like hermeticism type stuff, stuff leading into that really. Okay, like I guess like as I was a kid, I was like reading like stuff that like would touch on it, like just from like an elementary level. But like it would always like have like mythical like you know history going back to like you know where it like came back to. Mm-hmm. Um, what was this book I was thinking of? I forget the name. I forget the name. It was some like shamanic book that I was reading. That put a lot of things in perspective to why, like, I feel like karma is, like, very real in my life. But I forget the name of the book, so I can't even, like, go deeper into it right now. I got you. No worries. And if you remember it, just uh, yeah, just let us know. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. What did you do after high school? <clears throat> um, I went to Towson for a little bit. I was in the film school for about three years, I believe. But once again, my, like, disinterest eventually, like, kicked in. But I was using that, like, time to, like, actually um, 
this was around the time when I started like getting familiar with um what I guess people call the scene in Baltimore. So I was trying to use as much talent as I can to like, you know, use that for the scene, like shooting music videos and taking pictures. And um I liked my experience. Um I was really actually like intending to um graduate, but um I had a family, um something that happened in the family that just deterred my interest from school altogether. So I just eventually like stopped going. How long ago was that? Twenty fourteen and wintertime. Oh, okay. So, so it was about a few a few years ago. Yeah, dang, it's really been a while. You mentioned it before. Um, I understand the significance of it just through my wife and talking with her family. Can you explain to people who don't know what Biafra is and the significance of Biafra to the uh, the, the Igbo tribe in Nigeria? Yeah, absolutely. Well, a lot of people don't actually know this, but Biafra, it is also a country, but it also was the name, the first name for um, the ancient kingdom that is Igbo land. Back when um, Igbo land started, which was many, many, many years, many, 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 many years ago. But um, eventually, um, many years going forward, Igbo land, along with Yoruba land and a few other lands, would be colonized and be known as Nigeria. And then in 1960, they won their so-called independence. And then in 1967, there was this massacre that happened, and the Igbos were scapegoated for it, and a lot of punishment befell upon them. So <clears throat> there was this man who, um, I believe it was the 31st of May, he um, declared sovereignty. He declared that Eastern <clears throat> Nigeria is now a sovereign nation independent of the rest of Nigeria. He declared it to be the Republic of Biafra. And Biafra was a Pan-African Pan African independent nation that um, was meant to be main independence and, like, you know, full autonomy for Igbos and people who were living in eastern Nigeria at the time. Um, so this included both sides of my family, living in Emo and a number state and all of Igbo land and few other um, ethnicities that lived there around the time as well. The, this led to a war, a civil war between um, Biafra and the rest of Nigeria. My side, my um, ancestor's side was definitely underfunded, but my grandfather, my uncle, as I stated, who was, I think, eight, was a child soldier, um, few of my uncles, cousins, just like side, like, along with a lot of people, they served in the war as brave as and as willing and as determined as they were. It didn't change the fact that Nigeria had the British Empire on their side. When you have an empire like that on your side, only evil can come to the side to which they're fighting. So, around three million Biafrans died including infants, including people who are not fighting the war, not only dying from, from um, not only dying from violence, but dying from um, starvation, dying from illnesses. An illness eventually be, um, took over, took the life of my um, uncle. Um, like a few months after the war, the war ended when um, my um, the Biafrans conceded to Nigeria. I still identify as a Biafran just to, like, you know, respect the memories of my grandfather, my uncle, my 
my cousins, my ancestors, everyone who like you know gave their lives, and like those um millions and millions of people who died from starvation at the hands of the British Empire. I don't even blame the Nigerians anymore. I blame the British Empire for like you know being the ghost of everything that became that fell upon like you know what I see is two cousins, the Yorubas, the Igbos, just you know one Nigeria. I do believe in, like, you know, brotherhood, but I still believe that, like, everyone should, like, you know, have their own, like, you know, identity and independence. So all I can do is just, as one man, is just respect the sacrifices they made. Because if it wasn't for the, the sacrifice, if it wasn't for the sacrifice of my uncle who I never met, I definitely wouldn't be alive. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what led to my father moving to America in the first place. I can never forget that. So <clears throat> the least I can do is identify as be African for them. Right. In identifying as Briafrin or talking with other Nigerians who aren't Igbo uh, about the the war and just that uh, the sovereign state of Biafra, do non-Igbos consider that as disrespectful that you would still consider yourself Biafrin? Well, I don't give a fuck personally. (laughs) I do know I probably would not have that privilege Nigeria right now, especially with what's going on with SARS. Oh, yeah. I was reading about that. That shit is crazy. Yeah. Nigeria has fell under multiple military coups since um the Biafran War. The police have been known for, like, targeting people. Like, just like someone like me. I have dreadlocks. I have tattoos. I have piercings. And I only tend to speak my mind. So, like, someone like me would have been, if not killed, in prison a long time ago. I do feel like, you know, to, like, you know, someone like the police and someone just like to non non Igbo in general, yeah, they would see um, identifying as Biafran as, like, a big offense to them. We still have the internalized um, sorrow of, like, what happened, at least, like, my family does. So, like, sometimes it's not even brought up. If that's, like, on our side, you can only imagine how, like, you know, an outsider feels. But it's still, like, you know, it's just out of love and respect. Like, you just don't give a fuck, you know? You were talking about this when you talked about your time at Towson in the film school, how you were starting to get really involved in the scene. What has it been like coming up, or what was it like coming up in the Black Baltimore art scene You know, when you were in college, like up through now, through the past four or five years? How's that experience been for you? I think that's what really built me up to be, um, to be a good person of service to the scene because i saw like i saw when um the punk scene was fading out and i saw when um true laurels and i saw when abdu and i saw when Lamadan, i saw like when everyone was coming in learning from abdu and lawrence like really really put a battery in my back um i think from abdu i learned how to be um very inclusive to like respect everyone as like you know a member of like you know the family of Baltimore artists. I saw Abdu put together so many um curated shows and just in the name of culture, and that when you like you know are used to seeing bullshit, and you just start seeing something like, as they would say, legendary happen every other month. You can't help be inspired to like do something based off of that. And Lawrence. Lawrence taught me how to just, um, in a similar way to Abdu, just, like, stay strong and connect to the culture. 
once again, like, you were used to, like, seeing, like, you know, people who don't give a fuck about culture, like, doing what they want. But I feel like someone like Lawrence always taught me, like, just to stick to the code of, you know, making sure that, like, you know, the culture, like, that you were serving fucks with what you're doing. And I think that, like, and with Ramadan, like, you know, just... Ramadan, that taught me how to do that, but in a anti-establishment, in a punk way, I guess I would say. Who, who is oh, Ramadan was this collective started by um, Dylan Ubalda, and it was a collective that consisted of um, himself. He went by Diligence at the time, you know, it goes by Toyo Mancy, Butch Dawson, um, Jacob Molly, um, who else was in the group? Jeannie was in the group, um, U4, Danessa 8, um, like so many others, and they would like throw together. They would throw these um events like B Trip. I'm sure you heard of B Trip. The stuff uh, I have not. What's oh, B Trip is this um cipher movement which um featured um five producers, like five producers from the area or from like you know maybe somewhere in the East Coast, and they would like play beats, and they would play beats for five minutes in rotation in rotation, and there would be like you know it would be like uh availability for like people to rap over their beats the rules are respect the mic no writings and respect everyone around you going to those events showed me so like i didn't know like how many like producers be like producing quality like you know music for homies now and like how many rappers from there and, like you know just from the beginning like that would that would give them the confidence just to keep going and like you know start performing at shows over and over and over again and like you know performing would become nothing for them so, um, Ramadan really taught me, like, you know, the importance of the DIY nature of it. How long has that collective been active for? Are they still active now? Um, not together, but, like, everyone is, like, you know, like, everyone I believe that was in the group is still, like, doing something. B-Trip is still, like, a thing. When I was doing my research for this episode, uh, I saw a few things from your Instagram. Were you, like, the curator or the, uh, the creative mind behind, what is it? 808s and... Yes, I was. 808s and Sad Boys. There you go. 808s and Sad Boys. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Talk to me about getting that off the ground. Okay, getting that off the ground. I can't start before I start um, going to um, this place I was living in called the Bell Foundry. I was living there from April to December of 2016. And I started curating shows there around September 10th of 2016. I started that with my cousin, Android number 23, I think I had about, I was throwing shows every, <laughs> I was throwing shows every week, even though I wasn't supposed to. And I think I was show, throwing like two shows a week. So I would say I threw 30 shows there before the city eventually shut us down. After that happened, I was offered a residency at the Crown, the first Fridays of every month. And um, I did about five shows there until I got comfortable and I decided to start like, you know, branding the show. And I started branding the show and called it Eight Away and Sad Boys. We had our first show June second of twenty sixteen. First people on the show were my man Ghosty, this group from VA Prison Religion, Mikey the Savage, rest in peace. Um who else, who else, who else? Rets and um I'm forgetting some people. But it was a good show. I remember being anxious like I am before every show, but Kept throwing shows every month, every month, every month. And it was around, um, it wasn't until a year later until I actually got the, like, confidence to, like, keep it going. I was going to keep it on shows regardless, but I just had the confidence 
that like you know the shows that I thought would be good no matter what. Mm-hmm. That was like really like my step into like really like helping and like you know seeing like you know the talent that we have around the underground. There's so many like artists I was listening to. It was like yo, I gotta get you on the show. Or like if I like book them and then I don't hear them, then I hear them. It's like damn, hmm. really good. But it also like put some perspective. I never really, I never really went to concerts when I was younger. But um, I was always listening to music, and I always have this image in my head of after like listening to an album, seeing that artist live. Eventually, I realized that like this was what was happening. Like I was one who was like curating this, so I might as well make it the best as I can and make it as if like I was the person that was on stage watching. And if I am the person on stage, I wouldn't want to see no bullshit. I think that's what, like, always makes me anxious about shows, too. Like, just trying to, like, keep it at that, like, you know, momentum or keep it at that height of making sure that, like, things are set to a standard for the consumer. Before the pandemic hit, we were able to um, do 30 808s. I think it was 30. It's either 30 or 31. A lot of people really loved those shows. Like, really fucked with those shows. I'm really proud of, like, you know, what I was able to do with OG Swoos and Reem Unknown and, like, all the, these artists that, like, you know, have been, like, able to touch the blue side of the crown, like, for two, almost three years. Yeah. What's it like having to curate a show? I understand how it works as, like, a painter or an artist, but for musical artists how does that work how like take me through the process of how you curate a show okay here's how i feel since i know i'm set to like something once a month i'm gonna use it through using the 808 trope i will usually have an idea of two people that i want to book and then i want to find three other people that would work around like you know these two people that i want to book and one of them is usually the headliner. So I think, what would be a good, what would be good for someone to see right before they see this artist? And then I'll do that. And then before I know it, I would have like five artists. And then I'll think, I need two DJs. I never counted myself as, like, I am a DJ, but I never count myself as the DJ. So I always want to have two other DJs. And I try to think, who do I know would rock a crowd? Who do people like to see in the city? So I try to have two DJs and like I try to have them have like at least 45 minutes and I try to have the artists have 15, 20 minutes, usually 15, unless it's the headline, then like, you know, as much time as they want. And I just try to work with timing because like I try to see myself, I think we would have like a frame of 9 p.m. to 2 a.m. So I would try to make sure like everyone gets to perform try to give myself five minutes leeway for every artist because I was used to at least one thing going wrong. <laughs> Always used to that. So it was a lot. And I was thinking because, like, I haven't done it in a while. I was like, yeah, the process is, it get, you get used to it, like, the more you do it. Mm-hmm. But I think you have to be consistent. Well, you know, since you're a curator, but you have to be consistent in order for, like, you know, you to, like, feel like, yeah, like, that you can, like, the show will work. Yeah. I see what you mean. And okay. eventually, like, I learned that, like, it doesn't matter with who I book. I mean, it does matter to a degree, but, like, as long as I have, like, the timing and the placements, it will work out for itself. And as long as, obviously, as long as, like, the artist does what they have to do. So it sounds like when when you're curating these shows, 
I mean, as much as you want to be able to participate and have a good time, you are, it's like you're the guy who's like running around trying to make sure everything is going well. I, yes, I am the guy that's running around usually having to make sure things work out, which is great because like, that's my responsibility in the first place. Mm-hmm. But you just said yourself, it means that I don't really get to enjoy it just as much as like everyone else. But I will take that sacrifice. Yeah. And I also think that when you're in that position, even though you don't get to enjoy it firsthand, what you really end up enjoying is that other people are enjoying it. You're just like, oh, I can do something that people like and they like it enough to, to, to keep coming back every month. Now I'm super laser focused on making this the best that it can be. I still remember this one time when like I was coming out and I thought um <laughs> I thought um someone was trying to jump me, so I was on guard, ready to fight. But yo was just trying to say good showing. Like it's like <laughs> oh. Sometimes the anxiety doesn't go away in time. I know that like you know the shows like go well but like i still have to give myself time like some time to breathe it's like yeah. yo you just did that everything went well mm-hmm. it was even the show where everything was not supposed to go well and it went well i do like appreciate when people come up to like that is like the reward and like you know feeling other people know you know that the show was well yeah but i never like people telling me that the show was i like telling like them to tell the artists Okay. Because, like, at the end of the day, like, I, like, want to make sure that they know that they did a good job, too. Yeah, give them that validation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you talked about being a DJ, even though um, when you were putting together these events, you, were, you were, like, never put yourself as the DJ. Um, can you talk to me about what it's like DJing for Miss Cam, number one, and then number two, managing an artist, specifically Chris Cassius? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Cam and I made me... Re- Find the fun in DJing. Um, we have this sync when like I DJ for her because like she has this idea that I do like the music should never end, and like we try to treat like you know our sets like an album, right? And when I remember growing up in albums, is that technically like everything was just one song. Mm-hmm. So me and Cam have this idea that like all songs should transition, and then like, you shouldn't hear no parts. Like we should just keep going. So we eventually started practicing and like we got to the science where like we are the music we're like we are just like instruments that like blend into the music and what you have is just this 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 experience like it's no different than like i like using her as like you know example beyonce you don't expect no bullshit from her and not to compare like you know beyonce to miss cam but like she like holds herself to a standard where you can't expect bullshit from her either and since we don't have a like there's no band there's only me mm-hmm. so i have to like be on my best so I um know like what she like likes like music wise and like you know effects wise so like I work that in and I always just try to make sure I stay on point. Sometimes like the music does it for itself and like you know even I never have to worry about anything like going wrong because it's just there. That is something that I've always wanted. DJing the rapper aesthetic like yo this is like the like all form I respect the most like DJing the rapper so like. Being blessed to, like, do that with Miss Cam is great. And, like, just, like, you know, hip-hop-like fashion. It's amazing. Um, Chris, that's um amazing, too, because it's just like talking to, like, you know, your brother about, like, how you want to move forward with, like, music. And it's really, like, it's really fun um listening to, like, you know, music before everyone else hears it. Mm. Um, It's really fun, like, trying to think of, like, ways to deliver the music to people 
figuring out promos, merch, packaging, just ideas. Because it's the delivery that matters to me. And I'm pretty sure, to, well, to him too. And just like seeing the end result of it. It's still new to me because it hasn't even been a year yet. But like, I like where it's going. And what's the two world order? Two world order is, it's a movement dedicated to this current and next generation of Baltimore artists. Everyone's always talking about a renaissance, a renaissance, a renaissance. And I see it. But I also want to make sure that we don't lose sight or like anyone lose sight of like what we have. And like, what I really wanted is to see what else I see in um, other cities, people making money off of their music. The only way I know how to do that is to like have like just, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know the word I'm looking for, but like I'm pretty sure the listener can like understand where I'm coming from. Just have um, security for artists where they're able to deliver from the banner of being from Baltimore and making music. Um, it's, I'm pretty sure it won't be limited to music too because like I also include my man Reem Unknown, even though he is a musician as well, but he's also an artist. And in my opinion, like there's not really that much of that protection for like you know the younger like people anymore. I'm 29 now, so this shit don't mean nothing to me if, like, you know, the next generation isn't thriving. All I can do is make sure that, like, you know, I can be a, I can be a resource to, like, you know, people I consider roses that grew from concrete. Pull, I got this picture pulled up when I was doing my research. I was scrolling through and I saw this, and I was like, I, I feel like I've seen this before so i want to show you this picture right. and i wanted i want you to tell me where it was taken okay because if it's where i think it is i was there too all right that's about this picture right here <laughs> um okay that was actually at my sister's wedding my sister's traditional wedding it was at this um it's at a hotel is your sister ozzy Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, bro. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, man. I was there. That is mate. That is damn. Small yeah. world, yo. Yeah, I was there with um, you know, she's my wife now, uh Ijama. I don't know if you've ever Ijama's your wife. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um we were there. It was at um What's the what's the hotel up in Hunt Valley? Um, no, it's not the Westin. Um, it might be the Westin because I that that popped up in my head. It's like I can't Westin? remember. I can't remember the exact name of it, but I was there and I I had been to a few Nigerian weddings, so I'm just like, all right, I know how this is gonna go. This is gonna be like eight hours. Uh, you know, we're gonna get like Joloff. We're gonna get all that. That's gonna be great. Yeah, I like her wedding had gone on for so long that. It was also my friend's birthday that weekend. Yeah. I told Ijama, I was just like, I'm going to leave and go to my friend's birthday at the bar, and then I'll be back. And she was like, okay, that's fine. And then I get back, and they were just serving dinner. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was like, damn, these Nigerians, like, they they really know how to party. Hey. Um, but, I, I, yeah, I was looking at that picture. I remember your outfit because it was the only one that was, like, that striking blue color. And I was like, damn, that looks really nice. Because I had on the um, – what's it called i i can't remember the type of shirt it's called anyway i just had the shirt with the lions on it right? uh, yeah i know what show you're talking yeah about. i can't remember what they called it 
though. Yo, I forget too. Yeah, but I that I was wearing that, and that was after I think we had first gotten engaged. So like, all the other age mates were coming up to me, and they were like, "Oh, bro, you Ebo now?" And I was like, <laughs> "I guess so." Hey, you I and guess the baby, so. both Ebos now. <laughs> yeah, uh, but that was a um, that was a dope wedding, and that, Thank that's you. insane that we we were both there, and then now we're here talking about it. That shit happens to me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, that was great. Like, like, congrats, like, to my sister, and like, yeah. it was like, I'm used to that shit, yo. Like, just like you know, like parties going like off that long. And it was my family, so like, my sister always has to come correct. So, oh, absolutely. That's what Ijama was saying about our wedding, and she was like, I, I, I need there to be bunches of people. I need to be. Uh, kids there, they they gonna have kids sleeping on the tables. They just gonna have like food and fun everywhere. And I'm like, all right, let's let's that's that's fine. But when it when it comes time to dash the money, I I, I need that. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, that's yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, that's dope, man. And you know, I hope that your sister is doing well. She's doing very well. That's good, yeah. man. That's good. Does she still live in the area? Um, no, her and her husband live in um Augusta, Georgia now. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. What's she doing down there? Um, doctor. Oh, yeah, both okay. of them, both of them. Oh, damn, that's yeah. awesome. That's dope. So we're gonna start wrapping up here. Uh, these two questions I always ask all of my guests. First, what is coming up next for you? Um, what is coming up next? I am working on this project with my man Beto. He is from Laurel. He is a member of this group, the NASA E, which I mentioned previously. We, he is rapping, I am producing, he will be producing some beats as well. We are trying to have that come out first quarter of January. Oh, wait, first quarter of 2021, why did I say first quarter of January? <laughs> I know what you meant. <laughs> um, I am in the process of trying to curate a few safe shows before the year ends. One might be another 808. This other should be a tribute to a friend of ours that was um, taken away earlier this year. I've also started to uh, open up a studio space in my area um, for artists that, like, you know, I will be offering, like, you know, studio um, recording and DJ lessons. Um, I keep saying I'm a lot. I think that's basically it. I'm going to keep... Oh, my artist, well, she's not my artist, but Miss Cam will be dropping a project soon before the year ends, literally before the year ends, because it's coming out December 31st. Chris Cassius will be dropping something also the first quarter of 2021. Um, expect things from Reem. And when this pandemic ends, I promise, Ada Waits will be back on, going regularly. I will continue to just shine, be like as best as I can a brother, a curator, a producer, a friend to Baltimore, to the scene. So whatever comes, whatever comes. Word. That's what's up. Last question. How can people get in touch with you if they want to talk to you about curating or just want to uh, contact you? Um, <clears throat> I am Be More Alien on all platforms. That is B-M-O-R-E-A-L-I-E-N. Um, that's on IG. That's on Twitter. That is that is on something else too. But it doesn't really matter because you only use IG and Twitter anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, like any questions about like curating about music, I'm happy to answer. 
Like, I want to see, like, you know, people, like, learn as much as possible. Mm-hmm. I, even if, if, um, if it's from me, it comes from me. I just want to make sure people do their best because I didn't always, like, you know, do my best. And I know how it is throwing shitty shows. So the perfectionist in me wants to throw great shows. And I know that a lot of people have that feeling, too. So, yeah, come to me with anything that you have. Gotcha, gotcha. And then I have, I have actually two more, like, quick follow-up questions. When I was emailing with you back and forth, uh, like your emails, K Pequeno. What's that? What's the story behind that? You ever um, see City of God? Yeah. Yeah, Lil Zay. His name was Zay Pequeno in Portuguese, but it's also Spanish. Yeah. K is a shorter version of my real name. So I changed it to K Pequeno to mean Lil K. But yeah, it's basically Spanish for Lil K. But I guess you could see that as a first or a last name too. Mm, okay, okay. And you mentioned this before. How come you don't ever tell anybody, like, your real full name? I don't trust niggas. <laughs> <laughs> that point blank period, I don't trust niggas. Um, people be doing shit. People be doing shit with your name. My mom taught me that a long time ago. Mm. So, like, you know, I feel like some things, like, people just need, like, only, like, you know, trust that you know. Um, so that includes friends, close friends. Obviously, family, people that I grew up with, they know that. They also know not to tell my name to anyone. Maybe in a few years, people will, like, know my real name, but, like, there's many miles I have to go with this music shit and this art shit before I feel comfortable, like, letting people, like, that deep into, like, my life like that. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Anything else you want to talk about that we haven't already gone over? Um. Yeah, I guess to the young niggas that are listening, just keep going. Like, keep going with like whatever it is and don't let anything like you know obviously like money wise like we all need a lot more money but like yo don't let anyone stop you from like trying to fulfill your dreams because we only have this like lifetime before we move on to the next to like do what we can so like and if you have like you know family that you know that you're close to always make sure that you're close to them like no matter what because a lot of people like you know will like Lie on your face and say that they can. Like, you know, they be the ones that be plying behind your back. But, like, if you have a solid family, like, <laughs> you will always be blessed. So just try and keep going and stay close to you, your family. And that doesn't just mean that, you know, you're a living family, too. That means your ancestors, the people who have passed on. Because mm-hmm. they want you to keep going, too. They want you to keep going for yourself and for them. Um, That's all I That's basically all I got to say. Never admit getting goals accomplished as above, so below. Gotcha. Um, be more alien. Station North, sad boy. K Pequeno, little K. Ozzy's brother. Ozzy's brother. Oh, <laughs> that was my. That was basically what I was called growing up. <laughs> you really brought that back from like twenty years. Oh, one last thing. Yeah. I have a mix coming out in Halloween. R.I.P. Sad boy. That's the name of the mix. So it's my first mix in a long time, like over a year. So like, what? Being, uh, what platform is it coming out on? SoundCloud. 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 Okay. Probably maybe Mixcloud, but definitely SoundCloud. Okay, okay. So, yes, that's all I got to say. Word up. All right, man. Well, thank you so much. Nah, thank you. I enjoyed this. Yeah, of course. Of course.